Uh, last week, we asked that question, and we came to a conclusion. It starts by asking God to break our hearts, and maybe, maybe to break our hearts for what breaks God's heart. And, and throughout this week, uh, we've heard these amazing stories. The staff at Encounter have heard these amazing stories from you guys saying, God has broken my heart for this. God has broken my heart for social justice. God has broken my heart for poverty. God has broken my heart for disease and famine in the world. And we are so excited that God is breaking your hearts and God is helping you find a purpose for your life. Today, we're going to continue on in asking that question, um, how is God going to change the world through me? And it's going to be the now what, right? Like God has broken your heart, and you're starting to find a purpose for your life. Now what? What do you do then? And, and I'm guessing you're going to fall into two camps. Here. You're either going to be a passion person, or you're going to be a plan person. Okay, And I'm going to come out and just be honest with you right away. I am definitely a passion person. I'm in this tent right here, okay? Because I say that because I started, uh, I started college, and I walked into our school gym, and I saw the rock climbing wall, and immediately I knew that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And shortly after, I saw this video of people climbing El Capitan. I brought a picture of El Capitan, and it was just the most majestic piece of rock I've ever seen, and people were climbing it, and it was so awesome. And I told myself, one day, I'm going to climb that rock. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know who I'm going to do it with, but one day, I'm going to do it. And that opportunity came when my buddy Spencer... Right here, he was all like, hey, man, you want to go climb El Capitan with me? And I was like, heck, yeah, I want to go climb El Capitan with you. So we, we like, gear up, right? Like, we spend all of our money. We, like, start preparing, and we're like, I have no idea how we're, we're going to climb this thing. But, you know, we're passion people, so we're going to figure it out as it goes. It's going to take us, like, three days of sleeping on the wall and, like, eating and all. But it's okay. We'll figure it out, right? It'll all work out at the end. I mean, like, kind of, because, like, we started climbing, right? We, we show up in Yosemite, and we start climbing. Spencer's never big walled climbed before. We start climbing, and we're supposed to be on, like, pitch 10, right? We have our days all mapped out, and the climb is broken up into, like, 19 pitches because it's so long. It's like three Empire State Buildings stacked on top of each other. We're, like, on pitch 3 when we're supposed to be on pitch 10. Like, like this is where we were, Okay. Like those little dots that you can't see, that's us. We're supposed to be like halfway up the wall. We're like barely off the wall, okay? Which meant we had to start like rationing our food. We had to start rationing our water. But most importantly, we had to start rationing our coffee, okay? And it, because, like it is hard, it's hard. And you wake up in the morning and you just want to quit. And the only thing that keeps you going is the coffee, right? So like, I'm like, I have the coffee in my hand. I like look over at him, like take a sip, like grudgingly pats it over. Like he like takes a little sip and it's like this tension because like the coffee is running low. Like we're not going to be able to make it to the top without the coffee, right? And that's not even the worst part of the story. We eventually did get to pitch 10, right? And once we did get to pitch 10, it started raining. Like, like, like cloud storms came from like, from like the wall. We didn't even know it was going to rain until it started raining on us. Spencer is like 100 feet above us. I'm 100 feet below. And like all of this rainwater collects into this gully and forms a waterfall that's like hitting me in the face as I'm trying to like climb this rope, okay? So I'm thinking, I, I distinctly remember thinking, I don't want to be here right now. <laughs> this is the worst thing in the world. I'm not having fun. Somebody, I would pay anybody $100 to like fly a drone with a Chipotle burrito up to me right now. Like, this is the worst thing in the world. I don't want to be here. But that's not even the worst part of the story. 
The worst part of the story was next day, Spencer took like a pretty bad fall, like cut his wrist open, like cracked two ribs and got a mild concussion. I took a really bad fall shortly afterwards, like bruised my knee and broke a bone in my foot. But like he hurt his upper body, I hurt my lower body. You like combined the two and it's kind of like a functioning human being, right? But that's not even the worst part of the story. The worst part of the story is our rope got stuck and I had to like rappel down a hundred feet, which is literally the opposite direction of which of the direction that I want to be going in. So I'm like climbing down to get our rope unstuck and I hear something whiz past me. I'm like, oh no, Spencer just dropped something. So I yell up, Spencer, what was that? And he goes, bro, I just dropped a coffee. <laughs> what? You just dropped a what? Out of everything that you could have dropped, are you kidding me? That, that was the worst 30 seconds of my life. We kept a journal. We kept a journal and Spencer wrote in the journal, he said, today I dropped a coffee. Profanity has never reverberated the walls of Yosemite more loudly when Daniel, when Daniel found out that I dropped the coffee. It was the worst experience of my life. And afterwards, we got down after seven days of climbing when we planned for three, dehydrated, without food. And we had to go like straight to the urgent care unit to like fix Spencer's wrist. But at the end, it was all worth it. Right. In the end, it was all worth it because we're passionate people and we have that drive. And we're like, it doesn't matter what it takes. We just got to get to the top. And some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. You're hearing this story. You're seeing that picture of El Capitan and you're saying, yes, that is awesome. Like, you're a passion person. You stood in line when the seventh Harry Potter book came out and like you got it at midnight and you were done with it by 7 a.m. Because you're a passion person, right? You got to have it. You're the type of person that saw something on Pinterest or Instagram and you're like, ooh, I could do that. And now there's like 14 pallets sitting in your garage and you have no idea what you're going to do with it. But you're a passion person, right? You're a passion person. And then there's some of you in this room that are like, looking at, like, nudging your significant other, and you're like, you're totally a passion person, but I am not a passion person. I am totally a plans person, right? I have to have my ducks in a row. I have to have everything dialed in. I need to know the outcome of the situation, or I'm not going to be comfortable. I am a plans person. Like, like, you're hearing my story of El Capitan, and you're saying, like, that was reckless, that was dumb, you could have gotten yourself severely injured, you kind of did get yourself severely injured, you could have gotten yourself killed, and, and, like, you'd be right, kind of, right? Because if you're a plants person, you would have brought more food and water, you would have waited for a better weather uh, opportunity, like, you would have done everything perfect, if somebody got hurt, you would have found a way to get down, like, you're a plants person, you have everything lined up, but... The plants people in this room also know that if you're only a plants person and you don't have that passion, then your plans often stop at the planning stage, right? Like you have everything planned out, right? Like, like for decades, you've had this plan, uh, this dream of like having this awesome road trip out west. For decades, you've had this dream, this plan to go to Europe and have an awesome trip there. But it's always like maybe next year. Right? Like at the beginning of the summer, you had this plan. You did months of research to have this like perfect planting box in your backyard only to realize that summer has gone by, maybe next year. And every single time you say, maybe next year, maybe next year, you realize that if, you're, if passion without planning is reckless, planning without passion is inaction. 
right? If we want to succeed something in life, we have to have both. We have to have planning and we have to have the passion. And Nehemiah shows us what that looks like when it comes to the important things in life, when it comes to eternity, when we ask ourselves, what can we do to make an impact on this world? So if you will, turn, if you will please turn with me to Nehemiah 2. There are, there are Bibles underneath the seat. Go ahead and take it if you like it. The words are also on the screen behind us. Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So let's do a quick recap of what's going on here. Um, the Israelites, uh, they get conquered by the Babylonians. They get like carted off into exile. But then shortly after, God kind of like rescues them. And, uh, and the king allows the Israelites to go back to Judah, to Jerusalem, and to like go back to their land, right? And what, they, what some of them went back and they started to reestablish their lives. But it was very difficult because the city walls have been destroyed. The city fortifications were gone so that anybody could just come in and just take their stuff. Right, they'd get robbed. So Nehemiah hears about the struggles of his people, and he says, and, 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 and like the messenger comes, and Nehemiah's heart's just absolutely breaking for his people. Right? Nehemiah um, hears the story of the Israelites, and he's, for four months, he's mourning, he's fasting, he's like passionately, passionately crying out to God to do something about the situation. And, and immediately what we notice is that there is a ton of passion in Nehemiah. Four months he spent crying out to God, let, let me go back to my people, help me to do something, play a role in, in, in solving this problem in my people. Please, God, like his heart is breaking and he has this empathy for his people, right? And, and, and that's super important because Nehemiah is just full of passion, right? And you can see that when it says, when the king says, um, why does your face look so sad when you are ill, right? Like the literal translation is, why is your face so bad? Which I found to be like way more funny than it should have been because I could just imagine the king being like, bro, bro, why is your face so bad? Like who says that, right? Like Nehemiah, but he's like, his passion is written on his face. Like he's, his heart's broken. Like he wants to be with his people. The passion is there. The drive is there, but... If you only see the passion, then you're missing almost half of the story because, on, because you could also see that there is very strategic planning going on in the background, right? It says um, that Nehemiah, uh, the king, had not, he had not been sad in his presence before, but he had, his heart's been broken for four months. So for four months, this guy like, had this master poker face on, just not showing any emotions, waiting until the moment that it counted so that the king would approach him and ask what is wrong rather than him like, awkwardly like, going to the king and saying, like, hey, man, like, I have this request for you. It is the king that is approaching Nehemiah rather than Nehemiah approaching the king. Right? Another thing to notice is the time. Right? The month of Nisan is... Um, Month of Nisan in our calendars is like the end of April, which is like almost like exactly today, right? Like end of April. But in the Persian calendar, it would have been um, the beginning of the new year. And at the beginning of the new year, there's this cus customary for the Persian king um, to grant a request of one of his followers, or, uh, of his servants, right? It's like, a, it's like a, a free day where you could like ask the king whatever you want, and he'll do his best to like grant his request, 
So Nehemiah like holds this poker face for like four months, right? And then he approaches the king on the one day where the king is very gracious and generous. And and he does this all while handing the man a glass of wine. If that's not some Machiavellian level like strategic planning, then I don't know what is, right? And this is what I want us to see in here. Nehemiah approaches with full of passion, but he does it also with a strategic plan to get his point across. All right. And let's see how that plays out in the rest of the story. Continuing on. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when my city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? and his gates have been destroyed by fire. And again, right off the bat, we see the passion, right? We see the passion of Nehemiah when he says, I was very much afraid. He's like, yeah, I totally get you, man. Like, I'm scared to tell people they have something stuck in their teeth. Like, you're going to a foreign king and saying, like, look, I'm done being your wine bearer, and I'm going to go home. I would be scared out of my mind, too. But in this face of ad- adversity, right, in this, in this hard time, Nehemiah has the passion to love his people, to have that empathy, to have that bravery, to say, I'm going to press on with this, and I'm going to approach the king. It is, it is full of passion. He is scared, but he is also brave. But we see the flip side of it too, right? That's just half the story. We see the strategic planning when, when he plays like a sympathy card. And it might be, it might be uh, easy to miss if you don't know what you're looking for, but it says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Does that sound like oddly specific to you? Like he, what, what he's doing here is that in the ancient Near East, and he, like back in the day and even to today, they have this custom where um, you have to have respect for your ancestors. Like their burial sites carry significant weight, and you gotta respect it, and you gotta like protect, especially for nobili- uh, for noble people and for royalty. Right? So when Nehemiah goes and says, like, why should my face not look sad where the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? He's playing a sympathy card. He's saying, like, you know what, you know what it feels like. Like, all of my ancestors are buried there. Like, you, you know that we have to have respect for our ancestors. Like, can I please go back, back to my land? Right? And, and all of this he does so while avoiding where he's going. And that's the key point. Right? He never talks once about going to Jerusalem. It's either city of Judah or like the city where my ancestors are buried. Because earlier on in this story, in Ezra 4, right, there, there, is, a, there is a narrative of um, King Artaxerxes and King Xerxes talking about how J- Jerusalem can never rebuild the temple. Jerusalem can never rebuild their fortifications. Um, it is not good because of the political instability that it would bring. The title of Ezra 4 is literally opposition to the rebuilding. So you could imagine how if Nehemiah started talking about like, like um, Jerusalem is where he's going to be going to do all of this, how that would trigger the king to allow, to, to like not send him to go. So he avoids doing all of that. And again, I can't help but see the strategic planning in Nehemiah alongside with the passion, right? Because we said passion without planning is reckless, Planning without passion is inaction. If Nehemiah was only a passionate person, right, he would have gone to the king day one, right, no, no strategic planning, and come off completely, uh, completely out of line. He might have gotten himself killed, possibly and probably would have gotten himself killed. 
If he was only a planning person, he would have spent those four months meticulously planning exactly what he was going to say, only to come to realize that he doesn't have that passion for his people. He probably would have never said anything to the king at all. Passion plus planning is Nehemiah's strategy, and it's working out for him, right? But he's not out of the woods yet because we're getting to the most crucial part of the story. Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? And this is the crucial part of the story, right? Because this what is it you want isn't like a waitress asking you like, what is it you want for dinner where you know you'll get it, right? This what is it you want is more like a dad asking his 17-year-old son, what is it you want to do with those car keys? There's a level of suspicion behind that what is it you want. There's, there's a five-second window for Nehemiah to come through in an amazing way and to convince the king that he has the right to go back to his land. There's a five-second window for Nehemiah to make it all count. The four months leading up to it, he has a five-second window to make it count. And the question is, is he going to deliver? Is he going to make it count? Continuing on, then I pray to the God of heaven, I love that. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Didn't even have to think twice. Didn't even have to think twice. He was prepared. He was passionate. He spent the four months leading up to this. I think when he said, when it says, I prayed to God, the God of heaven, he prayed the same prayer that he's been praying for the four months, and the answer was already there. It's been in the plans. It's been in the works for four months, right? It's, it's, like, it's like if you're watching a basketball game, and there's five seconds left on the clock, right? And the ball is in the hands of the MVP, and everybody's wondering, are they going to make the basket and win the game, and have all of their hard work and preparation going to pay off, or are they going to choke, and are they going to uh, lose it off of their team? Are they going to fail in the most, most epic way? And we know what happened with Nehemiah, right? He drains that three, and he wins the game for the Israelites. His story ends in victory because of his passion, because of his drive. But the story, that's only half the story. Are you catching on to the theme here? There's a planning side of it as well. The planning side of it is continuing on. It says, Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal parks, so that he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? Talk about give a man an inch and taking a mile, right? <laughs> the king's like, all right, so what do you want? He's like, I want to go home, and like, here's my laundry list of things that I need from you to accomplish that. It's like, boom, 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 boom. The king gave him like a little, and he just takes it and runs with it. He, has it, he had it all planned out in the four months he's thinking. He's all like, look, I'm going to need you to write all of these letters. I need you to sign here, 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 and initial here. I'm going to need the materials to rebuild uh, the city fortifications, and I'm going to need stuff to like build my own house because I'm going to be staying there for a while. I talk about giving a man an inch and him taking a mile. And Nehemiah doesn't even, like the king doesn't even ask him. All he does is ask what he wants. And he just, just goes on for like for days and days about what he does. And he does all of this, again, without mentioning Jerusalem once. Reread the passage. He doesn't talk about Jerusalem once. He barrels ahead with a plan. He barrels ahead with passion. And the outcome is this, the last sentence. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me. The king granted my requests. 
I imagine Nehemiah walking out of that palace that night, like with sunglasses and like explosions happening in the background and him dropping a mic because that's how he probably felt, right? He had a plan. He had a passion for his people and he brought it to the king and he made it work in the best way possible. He is going to go back to his home. He is going to go back and help rebuild the temple. And that is an incredible story. But perhaps not in the way that we think it is. I thought this was an incredible story about Nehemiah and his passion and his plan to fulfill his purpose, to go back to Israel and to rebuild a temple. But as I was doing the sermon research for the rest of this series, spoiler alert, Dirk's last sermon for the series is called Relapse, and it's a story of failure. It's a story of the Israelites falling again and again, and Nehemiah's story ultimately ends in failure. And the more I look at it, the more I realize that him hitting that three and winning that victory didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because him and his team went on to lose the next four games and got absolutely swept by the enemy. This story was never about Nehemiah because the only success that is seen in this story, the only victory that we see in this story is God knowing that Nehemiah was going to fail and him using that story of failure and doing something amazing with it anyways. God knew Nehemiah was going to fail, but he said, this story isn't about you. This story is about me and how great I am. And I'm going to use your story of failure, and you're going to be put in the lineage of people that made an impact, that had played a role in bringing Jesus Christ into this world, who is going to die for the sin of all mankind and change everything. This story was never about Nehemiah. This story was about God. That is the true incredible story here. The true incredible story is that Jesus did come full of passion with a plan and he came with a mission to save us from our sins and death. The most ultimate sign of failure and of defeat, if understood by human means, became the biggest sign of victory for all mankind when understood through God's purpose. This story has never been about Nehemiah. This story has been about God and what he can do through man if we allow him to. This story, the incredible story here, is that God is calling us to look and love more like his son, Jesus Christ. And we do that when we ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his. And we find a purpose in our lives. And we carry out that purpose with a plan, with a passion that is not of our own understanding, but is realized and actualized through the grace of God in our lives. And even if we fail in the worldly standard, success is defined by how many people we point to Christ. Success is defined by how much kingdom impact we have. And success is defined by how much our hearts change because of that. This story has never been about us. This story has always been about God. And that is an incredible story. That's the true incredible story here. 
There's been a basketball theme going on, and I'm just gonna stick with it. There, there's a basketball player that I look up to. His name is Steph Curry. You might, you might know him from the Golden State Warriors. Last, last year, Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors did something that has never been done in NBA history before. And that is to go to the NBA championships and be up three to one, right? First team to win four games wins the whole thing. They were up three to one and they somehow managed to lose all three, the next three games and lose the championship. It has never been done before in the history of the NBA. It was, it's unprecedented. And from the worldly standpoint, it was the biggest act of failure that could have ever happened to a basketball player or a basketball team. But what I love about Steph Curry, what I love about his attitude is his definition of success, his definition of failure is not within the worldly means, but it is within Christ. Look what he has to say. He says, being a Christian athlete doesn't mean praying for your team to win. God doesn't give an edge to those who pray over those who don't. Hard work does that. Being a Christian athlete means competing for Christ in a way in which you give yourself all to him and win or lose, you thank him for the ability and opportunity to pray, to play. It means all your glory goes to God. No matter the outcome, because you trust in his plan for your life, there is more to me than just this jersey I wear, and that is Christ living inside of me. Steph Curry failed in the most epic way in the worldly way, but he succeeds every day when it comes to eternity because he is pointing people to Christ, millions and millions of people to Christ, and we are talking about him today because his success is in Christ. And our success needs to be in Christ as well. We're going to go back to our works tomorrow. We're going to go back to our jobs tomorrow. We're going to go back to being a student tomorrow. And we're going to go back to being parents tomorrow. And it is so easy to see how our, how our stories can end in failure. It is so easy to see that. And oftentimes, as we, as we live out this life, it's so easy to buy into the lie that our story ends with failure. But it doesn't. Because when our heart breaks for Christ, when our hearts break for what breaks God's heart, when we find a purpose in our life through it, when we develop a plan and a passion, not by our own understanding, but by what God does through us, then we do not fail ever because we find victory in God, we find victory in Christ, and we ultimately find victory in a life that is beyond us. Will you stand with me and pray to the God who gives us a life that is beyond us, let us pray. Dear Father, we just come before you and we, and, we, and, we, and we know and we're starting to have our hearts break for what breaks yours and it's starting to give us a glimpse of what your purpose is for our lives, but Lord, we're scared. And, and you have given us this plan and you have given us this passion to go forth and do great works for the kingdom. And even though that might look like failure in the, long, in the short term, even though that might look like failure in the worldly sense, there is victory in your death. There is victory in your resurrection. And we find our hope, not in our own passion, not in our own plans, but your purpose for our lives. And we go forward in you and having hope in you that you will come through for us in the best way possible as you have always done. And we know you will, Lord God. Be with us today, be with us throughout this week as we go out into our works, as we go out into being parents, as we go out to being students, that we find our identity in you and our victory, our victory ultimately lies in you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.